Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy, and joining me for this episode of Tape Notes are Fontaine's DC with producer Dan Carey to talk about how they wrote, recorded, and produced the albums Doggerel and A Hero's Death. Fontaine's DC are a post-punk band from Ireland made up of frontman and singer Grian Chatton, guitarist Carlos O'Connell and Connor Curley, bassist Connor Deegan, and drummer Tom Cole. All five members of the band met while studying in Dublin. Although initially playing in separate groups, they bonded over their shared interests of poetry and 60s garage rock. And in 2017, their musical chemistry persuaded them to unite as Fontaine's DC. Having started out self-releasing singles, it was with a string of 2018 releases that their reputation began to grow across Ireland as well as the US. As more and more doors began to open, the band was signed to Partisan Records and released their debut album Doggerel in 2019, working with producer Dan Carey. The album earned acclaim from critics and fans alike and picked up nominations for both the 2019 Choice Music Prize in Ireland and the Mercury Prize in the UK. Following extensive touring around the world, the band returned to the studio with Dan to work on their second album, A Hero's Death. Despite being released in the midst of the pandemic in July 2020 and not being able to bring their incredible live show to fans, the record still reached number two in the UK album charts and was also nominated for a Grammy in the Best Rock Album category. Dan Carey is a London-based producer, multi-instrumentalist, writer and mixer. Dan took his first steps in the music industry as a guitarist and was soon taken under the wing of dub reggae producer Nick Manassa. Regularly working together, the pair eventually set up a studio and Dan's production journey began. Since then, he has gone on to work with a vast array of artists ranging from the likes of Mystery Jets, Bat Flashes and Franz Ferdinand to Sia, Kylie Minogue and Christina Aguilera to name a few. In 2014, Dan received two Mercury nominations for both K Tempest's album Everybody Down and Nick Mulvey's First Mind, both artists with whom he's given us a full tape nose tour. And in 2020, he repeated the double nomination feat with the bands Black Midi and Fontaine's DC. Alongside this high-profile success, Dan has continued to help bring new artists to the forefront, as well as develop the sound of many well-established ones on his label Speedy Wonderground, including Squid, Dewey, and most recently, The Lounge Society. Today, I'm here at Mr. Dan's studio in Streatham, and I'm joined by Connor and Tom from the band, along with producer Dan. And what better way to start our conversation than by hearing something from the record. This is Sha Sha Sha.
It is Sha Sha Sha. It is Fontaine's DC, and I'm very pleased to say that I am accompanied by two of Fontaine's and Mr. Dan Carey. We've been invited back into Mr. Dan's studio, uh, the headquarters of Dan's operation, and um, I have got Tom Cole from Fontaine's DC. Hello, Tom. How are you, Janice? Thanks. Yeah, very good, thank you. And Connor Curley from Fontaine's as well, and Mr. Oh. Dan himself over in the other corner. Hello, Dan. Hiya. <laughs> so um, we're welcome back. Now, um, we tried an episode of Take Notes remotely together a couple of months back now, as we've been doing a lot during various different lockdowns, um, but it was really not working at all trying to talk to you all in different places via the internet with dodgy internet connections. And um, yeah, so I'm very pleased to say that we aborted that attempt and decided to wait until we could all gather in the same room together. And here we are at Mr. Dan's studio to talk about the work of Fontaine's DC. So we're going to look at three songs from the two albums that have come out and work out how you create this magic together. And the first song we're going to talk about is Too Real from Dogrel, the debut album. So maybe if we hear a blast of the mastered version of the song and then we can unravel and go back to the beginning. So good. That is too real. It is Fontaine's DC from Dogrel, the debut album. And we're going to look at how you got to that mastered version now. Um, when did it begin? When did this magical, beautiful relationship between Dan Carey and Fontaine's DC begin? Well, we, yeah, we had pretty much the album of, we had all the songs together and we needed a producer and we were playing a show in Five Bells, which I think is pretty close there, isn't it? Or, yeah, yeah. And we were playing a show. We came over from Dublin, <clears throat> played a show there for like 20 people maybe with like two other bands. I think we were like the first on as well. Yeah, it was a weird show. I remember like showing up and having like one guitar pedal and the other bands had like huge pedal boards and I was just like, <laughs> felt so out of place. And they're all wearing suits and stuff like. <laughs> and um, yeah, we just played the show and Dan came down to see it and uh, we just started chatting. Where was it? Did we talk to you on Twitter or something first? Trev had phoned me. Trev's our manager. Right. BTW. I had a quick chat and he was like, yeah, just come to this show. Mm. Um, Where's Five Bells? I don't know this venue. It's a pub, yeah. It's a yeah. pub. In Streatham or? No, 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 it's in like Lewisham. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah, we just, we played that show and like, honestly, we couldn't get, it's still true now, but I think we've kind of learned, but like, whenever we started out, we would just turn up as loud as we possibly could and the PA in the place, like we couldn't get Green's vocals over the sound of our guitars. 
and especially having no pedals as well, it was just like dry. And I'm pretty sure my amp had no reverb, so everything was just like really loud and really dry. And we had like the monitors, you know, that would be facing green. They were pointed towards the. <laughs> <laughs> we were trying to use everything to like get the vocals out, but um, I thought it was an awful show. But Dan seemed to to think it was. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we had quite a long chat afterwards, mm. and I think it was pretty much on the spot wasn't it that we decided to do the process that we yeah eventually did because yeah that gig informed the recording of doggerel because mm. you're you said what you liked about that sound was that it was so chaotic and it was like so hectic that you wanted to try and emulate that in the album you didn't want to like oh that was like messy let's like clean that up whenever you yeah. record the album you're like no let's do it let's I try it i wanted it to be raw because the experience yeah. of standing there being confronted with this incredible sound and Graham I remember being quite intimidated by Graham for the first time I was like fuck what's he going to be like <laughs> and uh, that sort of experience that you have is quite difficult to to kind of reproduce on record because obviously you're not you can't it's not going to be that loud and it's not just a sonic thing you have to kind of get that feeling and so we decided to record in stages and blocks of songs and try and make it like a performance so we'd sort of take three songs treat them as one thing and do it on analog tape so that if anything went wrong in any of the songs we would go back to the beginning of the tape and wipe it so it just creates this kind of pressure that you know in the way that you can't stop a gig and go back to the beginning but with recordings you can always stop and try again but it was a way of trying not to have that luxury so it was kind of intense but i remember like we'd only just met and i was like yeah. right okay <laughs> if you want it to sound like that we have to do it like this and you were like yeah. okay <laughs> so you were suggesting that process that night right after yeah just the after gig. the gig yeah yeah that's what i love i love that about working with you is that you always have these kind of like you know limitations and stuff mm. like you're always trying to make like even like the hero's death kind of manifesto or whatever was kind of like built upon what we had done with dog Rule, but it was a little bit different so i yeah. feel like even if you had the chance, you wouldn't be like, oh, that worked the first time, so let's do the exact same thing. Like, I feel like you always want to change it just yeah, a little bit. Yeah, it's always just... nice to be doing something that yeah. you haven't done before. Yeah, because I think when everyone feels slightly lost, it's kind of exciting. Yeah. You know? If you're just sort of doing it, oh, yeah, this is how you make a record. Um, but I remember whenever we started doing that, I'm like, we had never, like, obviously we'd never recorded an album before. And I remember you were talking about, like, guitar players being like, you know, like, sometimes they play a solo, or, like, the whole band plays a song, the guitar player's like, I want to redo the solo and you're like no you're not you're not doing it and i remember like whenever you said that i was like oh fuck oh, shit. i was like i better play it right because he's not gonna let me redo it like and i really believed you i was like he's not gonna let me redo it <laughs> but um yeah no it was great there's just a certain like a kind of nice animosity that builds up whenever like you are like messing up the song or something like someone messes up and then another person messes up one song you're like right back to the beginning there's this kind of like tension that builds up and yeah it, that, that is what playing a show is like yeah. or you or you decide not to not to go back because you know for the what you've already captured you have to mm. sort of make that calculation it's like well i'll let that through yeah. because the rest of it was so good and i think that what that process does is it helps you to remember that the the final thing isn't really about the individual part so much as the overall thing says so like it if there's one little fuck up by one person it doesn't really matter you know yeah. if the feeling's right so sometimes you know if you view it from one perspective 
it seems like something's wrong, but it's actually not. Uh, when I was thinking about this this morning, I was, I was thinking about this process that we do, and it, it reminded me of that line in um, these days, you know, it's like, don't confront me with my failures. I've not forgotten them. And I think that's like whenever you have like a guitar track and there's like a little mistake in it, it's like having to confront that and be like fine with it and just yeah, live with yeah, that yeah. and be like that mistake is there. People don't think I'm a perfect guitar player or like, and you just deal with that and yeah. move on. It's actually, it's kind of like therapy in a way. Mm. Yeah. That's what I really took from that first record is like accepting the little tiny little flaws in a, mm. in a piece of music. And yeah, that actually doesn't really matter. It's, it's all about the feeling of the mm. tune. So mm. yeah. And so when you said you'd work on like three tracks, or a little burst of these songs. Would you record all three and then go back to the beginning, or would you do one at a time, but just focusing on the? No, on no, no. The that was the thing to do the three. So you could get on the third song and then think, right, we're going to wipe, go back. Yeah, yeah. You can line. do. You can do an amazing take of songs one and two, and then if three breaks down, you, that's the agreement. And was, mm. you know, we kind of pretty much shook on it. We're like, look, it's going to be really excruciating at times, <laughs> but I promise you, it will. There's some great takes. Um, that aren't still <laughs> the ghosts of those tags are still on the tap. Put yeah. it that way. We lost a few good ones. Yeah. Wow. I mean, but, that, but as I remember, tough. we didn't end up going back that much, did we? I mean, it was. No, not really. It wasn't that much. And so, when you're recording these takes, so we're, we're looking at two real. Which batch was that in? We did it like the similar songs, wasn't it? I think it was. Was it two real boys and Hurricane? Was Hurricane. It? Maybe. Yeah, it's so, definitely yeah. two real and Hurricane were together. Yeah. And would you record the vocals as well at that in the same no, takes? No. no. So you'd get the music down, and then Green would be able to do his yeah. because obviously that as you were describing, kind of the idea of when you're all playing ridiculously loud, mm. and for Green to be on top of that and audible yeah. is, is a real challenge. You know? yeah. And it's such a vital part of what Fontaine's DC are about and what they sound yeah. like. You know, it's important that we get Green's force as yeah. much as the band. And back then. Because we we rehearsed the songs like you know to death, but like we knew where we were in the song, we had Green pretty much <laughs> mouthing the lyrics to us mm. while we were recording these tracks. You know what I mean? So we. But would... you had done a lot of practice because I remember when we were talking about the plan. Um, you know, obviously the vocals wouldn't be on it, so you did practice a lot, didn't you? Because I remember yeah. when I came to Dublin, mm. you played through all the songs in the rehearsal room, and then. You played through an instrumental version of it as well, yeah. just to check that it works. And I think that was really important. And some of the songs, you know, have a long period of the same thing over yeah. and over again. So I was, I was amazed that you could. Yeah, it's I great. find it really difficult to count to kind of like 128 when I'm playing something. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's yeah. so hard. I mean, yeah, I, I think that was great training. And I think that we've taken that now into like anything that we do. Yeah, I'd like to try it, but I don't think we'll ever be a band that would just like show up at a studio with like a few jumbled up ideas and kind of like make it from there. Yeah, mm. I feel like our thing is just like we'll write all the songs and like rehearse them so we have that performance done. Yeah. So then it's just more fun than to do like putting like space echo and stuff or like mm. doing because then yeah, yeah, the, the arrangements that you've done. I mean, it's like it's been the same for all three records. It's mm. been very very tight and kind of mm. carefully worked out so there's when once we start there's never any doubt about you know is this pre-chorus thing going on for too long or is that they've, cause they've been perfectly mm. structured and rehearsed so having agreed on this process with dan about how to record that debut album um then you went to dublin to see the boys in their rehearsal space and what kind of rehearsal space is this i mean is this all of you in one room together making noise yeah th yeah yeah yeah, it was a kind of a small enough room in uh, East Dublin, so it was, yeah, it was just a little 
black box of a room. So yeah, it was it was really nice for Dan to come over. I feel like that that was a really great memory. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. it was great. Shout out to Yellow Door. Yeah, the rehearsal place. From being in rehearsal rooms in Dublin for years, like all of them are so like disgusting. <laughs> yeah. All the mics are like awful, and this one, like the guys who set it up, like really did a good job. Everything was like really like new and clean, and it's just like a real comfortable place to be. And before that, we were in like a <laughs> we were in like someone's garden shed. Yeah, that's where we wrote to real actually. Like that's where we played it for the first time. Was in this like garden shed thing. It was such a gas little spot. <laughs> it was like this tiny shed out the back of some guy's kind of garden and it was yeah. like bolted up and there was like carpet all over the walls. Yeah. It, was, it was sick, man. But, but could you hear you down the road? Like miles yeah, away? Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was so funny. That's Dublin, you know, people just like rent out whatever they have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Or lots of money. But uh, yeah, no, that's where we played Trio for the first time. Wow. And how early are we going to go with this? I mean, do we have demos to hear of Too Real or are we just going to look at the, the process that you recorded here in, in the studio? Yeah, we, we have have a, the, the phone demo. Maybe we could have a, a listen to that. So would this be in the garden shed or is this in... This, this would have been in the shed, I'd say. Yeah. I would imagine. Yeah, it's before Carlos kind of set up his part more exactly so it's kind of more just noise mm. thinking that you would record these rehearsals and then go away and listen to them and then rearrange the song according mm. to you know your thoughts your further thoughts and discussion so everything mm. is quite analyzed definitely yeah i feel like we spend a lot of time like drafting and redrafting tunes like so mm. yeah yeah it's quite a long process really because we'd listen to them in your car back yeah. in the day. We'd like finish rehearsal, get in the car, play the phone recording, <laughs> and be like, oh, this seems too long in this place, or like try and remember thoughts we had about it and then just re keep going at it. Yeah. yeah. Until it felt right. The vocal sounds amazing. Yeah, isn't I actually it? love that. Yeah. Sound. So slow, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> wow. When well, it sounds like Green's singing through a loud hailer or something, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> Everyone thought the lyric uh, was, is it too real fire for, for ages? And we played at a festival in uh, Belfast or something, and there was like a guy dancing, and we were playing the song, and he was like making flame <laughs> things. <laughs> oh, it was so ridiculous. I'm sorry, that memory just came back to me there. It was so funny. <laughs> I mean, the essence of the song is there, isn't it? I mean, it's, oh, yeah. it's very fully formed. Um, but but this, you didn't get to go to the garden shed. 
Dan. No, you, I, no, I didn't go to the garden shed. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah that was already, already in the yeah. rehearsal room. And um, by that stage, everything was arranged. Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to think how much of a gap there was between the Five Bells and me going to Dublin. What was it like May that we me, recorded, you, or I think it was September. October no, it was September. That we no, I guess it was no. June. I think I think so you I must have gone in. Yeah, you July. came over in, in August or something, wasn't it? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there was when I kind of got involved. It, all the songs were very well formed, you know. So I mean, I don't. There was kind of no like arrangement work was there that we did. No, not really. I think really. like probably like a few things, like like tiny things here or there. But I think like an important part of how that came about though is that whenever we signed with our label, they gave us the opportunity for us to not work our normal jobs so that we could focus completely on writing and arranging for this album. Because mm. I feel like without that, if we'd all been working, we wouldn't have been had the time to really get so deep into it. So that was like a real important thing for us that we were just able, like that was our jobs then, like to make sure that those songs were arranged the best that they could be. We kind of spent those like three months and we kind of wrote half, like we were kind of playing half of the album for like about a year, but then I think we spent like probably May, June, July just writing mm-hmm. for like three months. So that was like kind of half of the album came from that like three month period. So it's mm. so an intense time in a way, oh. you know, a tense time of focusing and, and having that freedom to actually focus on, mm. hey, we are a full time band. No, this is what we do. No, yeah. And then there was come- this other strange thing that I, I remember really distinctly from the rehearsal room, and it might have been to do with the acoustic of the room, but um, I remember being in there and kind of hearing this sound, and I was looking around, I was like, oh, hang on, who's making that? You know, because like Curly's doing that, Carlos is doing that, is, well, where's it coming from? And there was this other kind of ethereal sort of just mad noise. And I think it was just sounds bouncing off walls and kind mm. of, yeah, but I think it actually turned out to be a really important part of the thing. So that I really liked that, and when we did the recording, we actually kind of tried to. I sort of recreated that by taking all the sounds of the guitars, mixing them together, and putting them through another amp as if there were one extra person, and then that amp was just going <laughs> just the whole way through the whole record, and kind of filtered it a bit and kind mm. of modulated it with the kick drum but it there is this thing i think it's you know it's kind of like when two guitars are playing really well matched parts there's this mm. third thing that kind of emerges so is that I why think, you do the sidechain thing that are you gonna yeah, do that, do you think you, you're gonna do that anyway i don't know i mean i just remember thinking that that sound that was coming from the room was really kind of interesting and so mm it was partly an attempt to kind of get that get back because when yeah. you do it in a treated room like this then you don't get that kind of mm. chaotic thing so it's so now that side gen thing is it's like just a part huge, of the sound isn't it part, yeah, yeah. yeah like a sixth element of, yeah, exactly. of the band yeah. um, it would be great to start illustrating this then mm. you know how, how you managed to create that so yeah if we go to the so when we listen to Too Real it is the band playing all together in the room mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah you know, we were quite minimal with overdubs, weren't we? I mean, this everything was tracked as a live take, and then we went back and, you know, like overdubbed some guitars here and there and Sormatron and stuff, but essentially it's a live take. Yeah. Well, it is a live take. 
much to Connor Curley's relief, I think, maybe, that you were able to overdub if you needed to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we didn't overdub, like, parts. We just kind of, like, we didn't, like, redo, like, the same sound. It was always a different sound. Yeah. Overdubbing, like, putting, like, a lower guitar in or just mad sounds and stuff. So, yeah, an example of that sort of extra sound. It's a terrier fire. It's a terrier fire. Is it too real? So that... What that is, is, yeah, a mix of all the guitars through an extra reverb and coming out of another amp, but going through a pedal that you also connect an input from the kick drum and the kick drum dips down the sound so that it's kind of, it's this kind of sound, but it's rhythmically connected with the drums. So you can sort of hear if you just... You can hear it's just going fluctuating in time with the drum and it just kind of... What was that? What was that? This <laughs> <laughs> always happens when we're doing this. <laughs> this is like the dub mix. So when you mix it back with the guitars... It's obviously, it's from the same source, but it sounds like a separate sound, you know, mm, but yeah. it's made in time because of the volume changes. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because it shows how important it was for you to see the band perform live and get them in a kind of basic situation in a, in a venue that isn't too fancy. They just turn up and, and perform, but also then make that trip to Dublin, watch them rehearse and experience that you know, yeah. as, an, mm. as a physical experience, because that clearly then informed how you approached recording them in the room and creating yeah. that, that extra element that could be could be there and be part of the sound because it was part of the sound that the in, band had yeah exactly um, yeah, yeah like the whole thing is about the true sound you know the being in rehearsal is really valuable because the way that we did the recordings was very much you know i like for everyone in the room to be hearing something that resembles what the finished thing will be you know so it's the opposite of having a setup where, you know, you're playing guitar, but the amp's in a booth in another room somewhere, so you can't actually hear it, but you know that it's going to be mixed together eventually. I quite like it. I mean, we'll come on to this later, but on Hero's Death, we took that like a stage further. Mm. We like had a completely different technique, which is mad, but <laughs> we, we can talk about that when we come on to it. But yeah, it is all about the feeling that you get from what you're doing and what it comes down to is I think that makes everyone play better if mm. when you're playing you just think it sounds moving and yeah fun yeah and yeah. you're you're getting the full impact so I mean it you're standing in the room or sitting in the room playing um with headphones on and and no no headphones no headphones no, no. Headphones. there's no need for it well, yeah. you had a click did I, you? yeah I did I did click coming off my phone so that was all yeah. <laughs> that's all it was right yeah so Amazing. then we would play it to time. Yeah. And yeah, because you just, you can absorb all the sound then. And it, yeah. Yeah, I think it definitely was important for us because at that stage, and even now, we're still kind of like very, like even when we have two radio sessions, like we just hate playing with headphones and stuff on because it's just yeah. not mm. the same effect, you know, you're not getting like that kind of intensity or kind of the music just seems kind of like distilled a bit, you know, like the people who will be listening to this will get the full effect, but. You know, it's but like you're getting a guide. Of yeah. Like, yeah, it's like I'm playing it. I want to hear what it sounds <laughs> yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it works for us that way. 
Yeah, well, mm-hmm. totally. And it is such a performance. You know, you, you mm. are getting the full impact and feeling and performing the performance mm. at the same time. Mm. Amazing. And what, what else should we be listening to from Too Real? Because what, one thing we need to discuss, and I'm sure we will, is the recording of the vocals and how you mm. record Grian's vocals and, and whether that changed between the two records. Yeah, I mean, that was quite a big thing. I remember really early on thinking that the the lyrics so interesting and kind of a big you know really important part of everything and i was really keen for the lyrics not to be submerged or kind of it's quite easy to mix vocals to sound good and they're quite buried in the track and it kind of if you you have to figure out what it's what's being said but i was quite sure that we should really put the vocals up front i remember saying to Grian that it should be like you're at a really loud gig and there's a really loud band kicking off but you've got a friend kind of talking to you right in your ear so that you can get the full force of the thing but quite a kind of you know considered clear vocal track so you know in the end what we did was to record them all instrumentally record the vocals I mean Graham did his vocals really quickly didn't he he only did one Mm -hmm. or two takes for most tracks and we we were still on the on the two inch tape at that point we left one track free for vocals so you couldn't do multiple takes mm. it's just like this is the vocal track again it's the same sort of thing if you want to do it again you have to go over it but that's lovely kind of pressure to have um so we did that and we tried to do it we did <clears> it sort of i think when we got to the end of a reel of tape we would just do vocals that evening just for whatever we had but then it was a weird process actually the way that we mixed it all because for a start, we mixed the whole album as one long thing. We didn't make it into individual sessions that have a song in. We just had all the songs one after the other because by then it was transferred back into the computer, but it was still a long kind of complicated mix that just you could play the whole album and the mix would move through its different stages. But then to keep that separation between the vocals and the music, we actually mixed it all instrumentally and then sort of basically put the vocals on top of that mix and I remember it was a bit kind of controversial I just remember like I remember Green was like really just like, I'm really worried about this mm. it just doesn't I can you know I can imagine the fear though of like yeah, putting your really voice exposed, like, yeah. really and there's hardly any effects on it I mean it's yeah, completely dry and like that's when we heard the like the kind of go to I think for all bands when you're rehearsing it's to like you know lather the vocals and reverb mm. and like it's just the kind of safety net and yeah. yeah, your idea of, you know, like stripping all that back and being like, no, I just want it to be the voice is like. I suppose because I do a lot of rap and, you know, it's like it's much more standard in with rap, I guess, you know, it's just like yeah. you don't really kind of think about it. I was kind of I was almost thinking of it like that. He was kind of nervous about it, but I think it it was quite a kind of a key part of it. But I do remember I felt really kind of. I remember reading some st- after the album had come out, you know, like you see this stuff online. It's like, whoever makes this record does not know how to mix. Yeah. <laughs> you always you always put the vocals within the track and you yeah. put some reverb on it, for God's sake. <laughs> I feel like we probably should have done one of these at the time, you know, to inform people of like, because I feel like once you have the background of what was intended, then the mix would make a lot more sense. Yeah, no, but I think I'm, I'm really proud of it as a mix because yeah. I think it's a weird sounding record, oh, yeah. but like it's all there and it's, I know it's weird, but I think that it did its job because everyone knows all the words straight away. You're like, yeah. whoa, what's he saying? Oh my God, you know, it's kind of so. Yeah, and it's like, it's more one off. Like, cause I think I had like, not expectations, but, uh, you know, the picture of this album being, you know, like in my mind, 
really produced and like big and all this kind of stuff. And I feel like you were saying it to us, but you were also kind of like steering it in your way to be like, no, it has to be this. <laughs> <laughs> but it's more one of a kind then, it's more unique. Yeah. yeah. I think if we had it done, like say like a bog standard, like, you know, big production of those songs yeah. and like everything, then it, it just wouldn't. It down, I think. Yeah. yeah. I think we should hear it, hear how you achieved this and what, what you did exactly. Well, I mean, so this is still off the multi-track, but I didn't do anything particularly different from... Open sky, six o'clock, a city in its final dress. And now a gusty shower wraps the grimy scraps of withered leaves all about your feet. And then the ringing of a twitching hand. Six o'clock, six o'clock. There's just no reverbs or anything. Is it a real fire? Is it a real fire? Is it a real? Is it a real fire? Is it too real fire? Is it a real fire? Is it a real fire? And there's quite a kind of, you know, discrepancy. Oh, the the guitar is obviously quite spacey, and there's tons of effects going on. So it's kind of slightly incongruous. Yeah. But, but also probably enhances the contrast. Yeah, and exactly, yeah. No can pull the passion loose from you turn great for hands as it stands. I'm about to make a lot of money. Gold caps in the pan. Because one of the interesting things about having a vocal like that, which is so clear and audible, means that initially the listener hones in on that and it connects to the listener in that way. Mm. But at the same time, all this other powerful stuff and interesting mm. stuff is going on. And the more you listen, the more that becomes apparent, mm. you know, because the, the vocal embeds itself in your understanding of the song, but then suddenly you realize, oh, they're, they're doing all this crazy stuff. Mm. And I think like writing, or whenever that song like came to like fruition or whenever, it was like the first song that was like such a departure from like what we'd kind of come from of like a kind of garagey, like 50s rock and roll kind of band. This one, I think, was like us really trying to be like, please, like music industry, look at us. You know? <laughs> <laughs> We're crazy. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, I actually haven't heard it in so long. Like whenever he said, ya boya, I forgot that, that lyric was in it. That's such a funny lyric to have in it. It's so good. I mean, yeah. you referred to your 50s rock and roll roots. Yeah. Now, what do you mean by that? You know, what? But like a lot of our songs, I suppose, um, there's none really on Dogger. Like Liberty Bell, for example, like is an example of like that was the kind of style that we kind of started with, but it was even probably more kind of down that just like three chord like rock and roll. Kind oh, it, of stuff. Oh, is is that kind of song? That's yeah, true. Yeah. yeah. So that was like the start of the band. Really, that's how we sounded, and we I think we all kind of got into that music at the same time, like that kind of like '50s stuff and like '60s garage bands, like the Seeds and. Uh, yeah, it was only slowly that we started kind of adding in influence from more like like new wave bands and like stuff like from like eighties and nineties music. But at that stage, yeah, we were very much just a kind of rock and roll band. That I think like we had done that for a while, and once we kind of figured that like it wasn't the most original thing to do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that was how long was that period then? This is the, the the pre period to the Fontaines DC we all know and love in a way. You know that maybe only a few people in Dublin got to witness. Mm. That was probably like two years, wasn't two it? Two years, yeah. I'd yeah. Say. Quite a while of just like playing around Dublin, playing kind of rip off 
50 students. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you've got to do things like that. You've got yeah, to go yeah, through we do, the, yeah, that, definitely. That whole thing. And, and, then, and We two, just wanted people to dance, I think. That's because we, we kind of almost catered the sound to play in Workman's, like the venue that we played in the most. Because it kind of seemed at the time in Dublin that there was just a lot of, like, in no bad way, but there was just, like, a lot of, like, singer-songwriters and stuff. Everything kind of was a bit, you know, serious. And, like, we just wanted to write songs that made people dance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And so Too Real was a point where you suddenly think, actually, we're... We're changing. This is this is a different sound to what we've been doing. Yeah, definitely. And it was definitely informed by, uh, I said definitely a lot there, but it was a sound that was uh, informed by girl band. Like whenever they kind of came out of the Dublin scene, like it was such an earthquake for all the bands because yeah. it was monumental to see a band, you know, be themselves and be successful and people like buy into it. And I think that really lit a fire for a lot of artists, you know, to see that happening, like see them play like at the Pitchfork Festival in like Chicago, you're like, yeah, they really like changed the game. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? They're a towering force behind the Irish music scene mm. that, that everybody's completely blown away by and so many different kinds of artists are coming through Ireland now. Um, but girl band are almost, they're not forgotten, mm. but because they disappeared for a while, you know, they didn't get their due from yeah. the outside mm. world in a way. Yeah. You know? And yet clearly the impact that they made on, on people like you and all your peers, you know, is phenomenal. Yeah. You know? Oh, it was wild. Like even just seeing like our manager, DJ, like Lawman, one of their songs, like that music being played in like a nightclub setting was so insane. I was like, this is amazing mm. that this noise is now like, this is yeah. the new normal or whatever you know this is what people are into this is great like it was a really exciting time whenever back then yeah fantastic so too real the pivotal point in the evolution of fontaine's dc we're going to take a quick break and we'll return to explore the journey further You may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in, as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labeling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers, and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organize set lists, and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favorite features within Tape It Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tape It sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favor. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give Tape It a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off Tape It Pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. 
Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Take Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. So from Too Real, we're going to talk about Hero's Death. So Too Real from the debut album by Fontaine's DC, Doggerel. A Hero's Death, the title track of the second album. And Dan, earlier on, you referred to a different approach for the second album that um, you kind of achieved a certain level of what you were trying to do with, with the band and that, that reaction initially to what you heard back at the Five Bells um, and managed to capture on the debut record. But you wanted to switch it up. You wanted to do something different and the band did as well. And yet, ultimately, you still recorded in this very room. Yeah. So I suppose the we wanted it to sound... We wanted it to sound more like it was being broadcast from the top of a mountain or something. <laughs> that was the kind of, rather than it being like someone sort of whispering in your ear at yeah. a gig, yeah. it was supposed to be a big kind of thing. And so we we ended up after a couple of days, we built that castle, didn't we? Yeah. We, mm. we built this kind of, um, <laughs> <laughs> to kind of get the sound for everyone in the room even more extreme rather than, having the amps spread around the room, kind of each in their own little place, like they are now, you know, they kind of, there's the normal way of doing it is just like this. We we got all of the amps and put them, well, we built this kind of castle that was a castle of amps, but it was surrounding the drum kit. It was kind of the amps and the drums were all in amongst each other in this big mm. mass pointing outwards. And you set it up and, in the way that, like my amp would be left. You know, it, yeah, it was this, it's the stereo. So basically, you could stand here and hear a very, very realistic stereo image. The bass amp was in the middle in front of the kick. Curly had two amps, and they were both like somewhere between the floor tom and the kick. Mm -hmm. And Carlos's amp was there, and they were all kind of standing on things. And it just it looked bizarre, but it also, from a technical point of view, and I hadn't really thought of this, but until doing it, and then realized that it's really good because wherever you put a mic in the room. It doesn't really make any difference where the mic is. The sound from all amps and the drums is hitting it at exactly the same time. Whereas, obviously, if you've got an amp there, the drum kit there, if you bring the mic this way, then it's going to get the sound from that amp a bit mm. sooner than it gets the sound from a kit. And so if you have another mic that's closer, I don't know, it just kind of makes it more complicated phase-wise. But when you do it like this, you can just put mics everywhere and they just all sound really coherent. Um, because if you created... A castle wall of yeah, it's a point amps. source of sound. It's just everything's radiating from this one place. So we had kind of fun with that, and yeah. it, just because it looked ridiculous, we were just <laughs> every time we came into the room, we just laughed. And but it's a great, it's a great development from the first way. You know, when we were saying like not playing with headphones, you know, you want to give giving us the realistic sound of what the album's going to be mm. like. That's like a real development. On yeah, like, exactly. It's even more like obviously it's different for Tom because mm. he's behind all the amps. <laughs> which he's just probably happy about. Yeah, it was such a weird way to uh, record an album, like peering over like a little wall of amps. It was ridiculous. So then we're just like playing, looking at the amps, kind of excitedly, you know, being like, it sounds so big. And yeah, that's why I was, I was kind of annoyed. And I, I still am annoyed to this day that we only played Televised Mind once with that setup. Because yeah. we, we recorded it and then it was, that was the take and it was done. And we never played it again here. And I'd think about that probably once a month now. <laughs> <laughs> you want to go back and just do it. Yeah. Because it was, so good. it was so fun. It was interesting. I remember you were all quite knackered, weren't you, from the touring and everything. And it had been quite a kind of, so I remember we kind of set up 
And um, I think we did that thing where we recorded three or four songs pretty much straight off. I mean, I, when it was being played, I was like, this is fucking amazing. And everyone was like, oh, God, I'm not sure. Da, da, da. So I was like, I'll just let everyone go home. And then, <laughs> and then like, everyone went back to the house. And then I just got a really nice rough mix of everything together and then when you came back in the morning i was like all right check this out and you're just like ah oh my god we just like yeah didn't do it again we're just like yeah, it's, yeah. yeah that's great so what should we hear should we hear a hero's death as it ended up that's yeah. uh, just so we we know exactly everybody knows exactly what we're talking about I love that thing on the on the, the first chord. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Life ain't always empty. 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 Don't get stuck in the past. Say your favorite things at mass. Tell your mother that you love her. So that's the blast of a hero's death, the mastered version. And I mean, something we've learned already is that Fontaine's DC rehearse and arrange and methodical and disciplined and put yourself through the difficult, arduous process of working on something until you get it right. And so having already established that as your your modus operandi, you continue that for a hero's death for the second album. But I mean, do you continue to do demos in the rehearsal room? Did you, you know, can we hear something like that? What could we? Yeah, I think we have a demo of a hero's death. But by this time, you've moved from the garden shed to, <laughs> to uh, Yellow Door. Yeah, we were in a bigger room for that. Um, all of this was done in between a lot of touring. So any days off we had, we'd usually tour like five days of the week and then to two days we'd write. Right. Little mistake there, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Little slip there. Very rare. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like I'm playing a mad rhythm. It sounds more like that Velvet song. Yeah. But the idea of the backing vocals is there, clearly, already. Yeah, if Green had done a demo for this, that was like pretty much, like had the, all the main parts. Like. Is that common? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's definitely done that with a good few songs. I think it was like, all the lyrics were there and then we kind of arranged it just a little bit differently with the backing vocals, like the bap 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 parts yeah. and stuff like that. And sort of at the times a little bit, but yeah, it was pretty much all there. He, he wrote this song the last day of Dargle. Right. So we were like, having people over to listen and he just like wrote it in the room back there. So it was pretty mad. And this was like the first song that we like kind of got done, I think, for this album. Yeah. Life 
And did you go back to Dublin, Dan, to see how they were getting on, or did you wait? No, um, no, it was weird because there was the American thing, wasn't there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, so th- yeah. this took a completely different route from yeah what we'd expected. Yeah, we went to we recorded a hero's death originally in LA with a great producer called Nick Lana. And um yeah, it just ended up not really working. Not that it was bad. I think it kind of just moved away from our original demos a bit and it ended up being too far away from the original source if that makes sense. And um yeah, we just re- needed to redo it and we asked Dan if he'd he'd do it and he said yeah. Right, so maybe building on the success of Dogrel um, and suddenly you're a worldwide sensation. Um, <laughs> people start suggesting, well, maybe you should go to LA and record with Nick Lawley. Yeah, know, maybe it, you know we should up this. You know? Yeah, yeah. There had it, it was just something that was kind of thrown at us, and I think like all the way through our kind of careers, we've we're not really motivated by uh, money that much or whatever. If, if something sounds really exciting to do, then we usually just say yes to it. Like even if it's like a gig that's like doesn't pay us, but it's on on like a mountain in Italy or something, we'd usually be like. Yeah, that sounds yeah. like. So we, yeah, we kind of just went down that route, and it made sense with how we were touring that we ended up in LA. So uh, yeah, I mean, things happen. We learned a lot from it, and uh, yeah, we're really happy that it kind of came back to like just being here and kind of. Yeah, it was. It was funny because I, I remember like they they told me that I was going to do the record in LA, and I was like obviously a tiny bit crestfallen, but I was mm. like, oh, I should be doing it Sunset Sound. Yeah, that would be wicked. Yeah. And so I thought it was done. And we were like, yeah, we'll definitely do another album together after that. And mm. so I was like, yeah, cool. And then I remember you had that gig at the Kentish Town oh, yeah. Forum. And I think I was, it's not really, really ill or something. Anyway, I was just like, I've been so out of the loop. I didn't realize that Ian and Emma were on board with management. They were like, they really want you to go. You've got to go to this gig. And I was like, oh, yeah, but I'm, they're like, look, we'll just get you a cab. Um, then I met Ian at the bar, I think, in the forum. And he was like, so, have you heard the news? <laughs> uh, <laughs> they, they, they want you to do the album. <laughs> and and I, I was like, but they've already done it. And he's like, no, 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 they want to do it again. So I was like, oh, fuck. But then we, it had to be done really, really quickly. Quick. Yeah. yeah. So really we did, quick. we basically, it was like just a couple of weeks later, wasn't it? Mm. Um, yeah, when was that Kentish Town show? That was end of November, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, and we recorded yeah, in, January. in January. Yeah, yeah. so I guess a month. We're yeah. talking 2019, Yeah. 2019, yeah. 20, no, 2020. 2020, was it? Yeah. No, yeah, 2020. 2020, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry, I got real confused there. I was like, <laughs> well, I, think we, I think we had COVID. I was like, no, we lost the whole year there. It was 2020. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, no, it was 2020. Yeah, 2020. Yeah. That is hard to believe. So what, Hero's Death was recorded in two weeks in January so that I mean that's but a big and also interestingly they still haven't let me hear them. <laughs> like, I, I, I actually haven't even heard them since like then. I've, yeah, mm. have you? I've, I don't. I don't actually have them. I must, yeah. I must see if I can get them. The last tips. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's it. A, it was a big decision though to turn your back on that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, definitely it was the best thing. I think it mm. just would have been. It probably would have sounded like really good, but in a way but it just would have kind of lacked the sort of essence of being behind the songs you know and the certain like thing that that dan really understands is like sometimes like you want something to sound a little bit you know muddy and a little bit mucky because like that adds to the kind of texture of the song it's not like 
it's a decision. It's not like out of like you not being good enough to get a good tone. You know what I mean? Mm. So yeah. So you then returned here to Dan's studio, built the castle. Well, um, the, the other thing that was funny is because of that experience kind of being like that, then mm. when we were talking about doing it again, I thought, you know, maybe it'd be nice to kind of move things on a bit. So I was like, why don't we, we could go to Abbey Road and do it there, or we could hire a studio. And, and I just remember Carlos being, no, 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 I just want to go back to Streatham. I just want to do it in the same room, just exactly the same. We've, we've done that. That doesn't work. Please, yeah. can we do it at yours? Yeah, that's uh, actually so gross. Yeah, it was, it was so nice to like, having gone and done that year to come back to something so familiar mm. as like this room. It was it was such a lovely thing to come back yeah. to. I think we all needed it. Yeah. Mm. Big time. Yeah, it was a fun two weeks. An intense two weeks then. And the same approach in terms of takes? Mm. To an extent, but then I think we did a bunch like that. And then there was something that we were, we went around a couple of times and Diga just said, actually, you know this... <laughs> this thing about wiping that song if we get this one wrong it's now becoming really stressful can we just not do that because <laughs> he said you know like it can be really exciting and really fun but like yeah. there's one song that was quite hard to play and and that kept causing another song to get keeping yeah, erased yeah, yeah. <laughs> and suddenly it just didn't really make sense so we kind of scrapped it for some of it you know yeah i mean that's the thing with all those rules they're there to kind of if you're playing this game or whatever and it has rules. It's just to make a vibe. It's not really because it has to be. So, I mean, obviously, mm, it's quite, yeah. when you realise you can break them, then it's fine. So we just didn't do it. But, um, so it's, yeah, kind of a slightly different process. So A Hero's Death, you want it to sound like it's coming from a mountaintop. How do you achieve this? You know, how do you then, you've built the castle. Mm. Well, can't, maybe subconsciously <laughs> the castle is like trying to make a mountain. <laughs> 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 just wanted something that looked like that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he just I, didn't want to see Tom. Or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rude, Dan. <laughs> we just wanted uh, for like this song specifically. I think like a man, like influencer, like one of the main things that we wanted was for it to sound like the drums to sound like Lust for Life. Mm. That same energy, like that same kind of feeling you get whenever you, like Lust for Life comes on, you hear those drums. And you just wanted that from yeah. this song. Yeah. But the process in terms of the band all playing together, and then the vocals done afterwards was yeah. same sort of same, same kind of thing we treated the vocals differently there's much more reverb. kind of echoes and reverb on the vocal right. slightly more conventional mix mm. <laughs> can we hear that don't get stuck in the past say your favorite things at mass tell your mother that you love her you can hear that there's quite a lot going on. That's just the the drum overheads, but you can you can kind of because all the amps will hit the drums, there's no, you know, you kind of hear quite a lot of no everything else. And who does the backing vocals? Me and Digo do the backing vocals. I think we did them together. I love those <laughs> backing vocals. Yeah, they're, like. <laughs> they're great. I, yeah, it's just kind of, uh, I find it weird listening to that song, just knowing that we've like, we haven't played it live since it's been released as an album. Like. Yeah, it's yeah. so weird, that whole 
sort of the kind of stalling of the yeah because the the trajectory after Dogrel was so steep, wasn't it? If you think about everything, seemed to be a kind of a good surprise. Yeah, mm. like every day yeah. there was like, whoa, what? F-? And then when did COVID start? Just it's probably like March. a month. Can only have been a month. Yeah, yeah. where it looked like it might. Because we be finished normal. it and then we played Brixton. Yeah, we played That's Brixton right, yeah. in the middle of February. Yeah. yeah, and then kind of after that, it seemed like everything started just stopped. Yeah. yeah. It was kind of nice though. I actually really like the feeling of releasing an album and not touring it because whenever you release an album and tour it, you become like a salesman, you know, you're like going around being like, this stuff's great, you know, buy it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, whenever you don't have to do that, it feels a lot more like kind of, you're just like dropping it, you know, it's like mic dropping it, being like, that's the music, mm. I'm out. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, that it's not just part of a process of like, hey, we've got these songs and you go and buy them now. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So um, we're going to listen to You Said as well, but it'd be great if we could build up A Hero's Death through the parts and hear all these, these magical elements. Heavenly Angels. <laughs> Life ain't always empty. Life ain't always empty. Life ain't always empty. Life ain't always empty. Don't get stuck in the past Say your favourite things at mass Tell your mother that you love her I go out of your way for others Sit beneath the light that suits you And look forward to a brighter future Life ain't always empty And so when Green presents his initial demo Life And you, you were saying, empty. Connor, that he had put a lot of these parts already in so does he have a little multi-track that he records on or yeah, it's, a, it's just logic you know on, oh, a, right, okay. on a yeah. computer sink as far down as you could be pulled up happiness really ain't all about luck let your demeanor be a deep down self and don't sacrifice your life for your health when you speak speak sincere and believe me friend everyone will hear <laughs> i think it's good to know in the sound that uh yeah, uh, Diego, our bass player, plays one note for the whole thing, and yeah. it's absolute genius. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, I feel like there's such a conscious thing, and I feel like Diego in particular is like really great at this kind of idea of like, like it'd be so easy to play like a busy part and to kind of just have one note, one note yeah. and rhythm, and that's all you need. That's all like what a bass should do sometimes. Yeah. And just because you have the option to play like such a mad line, to not do it is like the most genius. Is like more artistic, I think. You know? Yeah. Still got that effect thing that mm. we started on dog rolls. Right. Around the bear as well. Cowbell. You can hear like now there's sort of overdubbed guitars, like you mm. you brought in a second guitar yeah. at this point. That just kinda keeps building and getting Yeah. Is the cowbell an overdub or is that... Cowbell is an overdub, I think, yeah. 
should get someone to come out and play it live. Yeah. So if someone came out playing the cowbell doing like <laughs> bang bang. Don't give up too quick. You only get one line, you better make it stick. If you give out sounds to every breath, then we're all in the runner for a hero's death. Life ain't always empty. 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 the year of the snare now the real thing's here <laughs> such a good end <laughs> uh, it's such an amazing track I mean it's the kind of s- song that I don't know whether this has happened yet and I guess because you haven't been on tour you don't know but that you're going to be presented with different people's body parts with different <laughs> lines from the song as yeah, tattoos I, I'm sure that will happen no. yeah, I think it's 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 very unique in the fact that it, it's, a, it's a song with a of this nature with a positive message and I feel mm. like that's kind of you know the reason why there's like in Dublin right now there's like a whole wall that's painted uh, it says tell your mother that you love her is that? yeah mm. <laughs> that's great it's like huge <laughs> yeah and uh, I think it was done for Mother's Day I think so yeah, yeah which right. is really cute like yeah but yeah I, I agree I think it's like just all the sentiments of the song like immediately like kind of connect with people you know and immediately you feel a sort of kinship with the direction that he's saying to kind of go on yeah totally um we're going to take a break and we'll be back and we've got you said on the way we're going to look at you said now from a hero's death by fontaine's dc so we're going to have a quick blast of the master to get us in the zone tender side you could say of Fontaine's DC (laughs) for a band who whip up an amazing swirling noise there Mm. is actually quite a lot of tenderness in your music I think and you have quite a few ballads yeah that song like this song was uh, me and Carlos kind of wrote the guitars of this song in a hotel in Brussels whenever we were on tour and um, yeah the kind of idea that I had for it was I wanted it to be a mixture of the Brian Johnstown and uh, Prefab Sprout that was like the two worlds that I wanted to kind of collide together and uh, I just wrote the chords, and then Carlos came in and wrote that guitar line. And then it, it was on the whiteboard in our rehearsal room for ages. We didn't actually touch it. It was on the board as like Curly and Carlos's love time or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and uh, we finally did it, and like it is one of those songs that it's great when it happens. 
it's hard to come by though but we literally just played it in one go and the whole arrangement and like green sang like pretty much all the lyrics just like on the fly in the rehearsal room. yeah yeah and the song was just done then wow had he and not written the lyrics as a separate thing before i think so wow and do you have a recording of that is that moment i think we have captured? a demo there i think, yeah, I think yeah. that's we did that we played it and wrote it in space of about 20 minutes and i think this demo was just like right after that so it's yeah. like the second time we've played yeah. the song that's a magical time when that happens. Right? Yeah, yeah, that was great. So nice. and Curly's love times has to be used in something. <laughs> yeah, maybe a spin-off album somewhere yeah. down the line. <laughs> I think this is like the first song that you did a beat like this. I don't know what you call a beat like. Yeah, it was, it, this was probably the first time I was kind of looking at more like really straight up hip hop yeah. kind of beats. Like, like it's kind of been built upon since then with like newer songs, but hmm. I just remember it was so nice hearing something that wasn't like just a kind of like maraud of like rock and roll drums or anything. It was like this kind of nice swing to it. Like, yeah, it was really nice. I feel like up until this point, uh, the band I had like a real aversion to like closed hi-hats and like mm. stare on two and four like I don't know why yeah. but it's just it works though mm. <laughs> well, I think that's one of the interesting things about what you create is that in some ways we feel we get a handle on it quite quickly mm -hmm. but actually you make all these subtle changes and these subtle shifts within the course of an album yeah. you know say so we go back to the debut and the way that you make a, a nod to Irish traditional music and, and it just kind of gives it a richness that is there that you don't necessarily initially expect, I think. And I think it's the same with A Hero's Death, that all any preconceptions you might have of any loud, noisy band, such as Fontaine's DC with a singer who's in your face and maybe a bit scary at times. No, but but um, you kind of keep challenging us or keeping us... Um, guessing in some ways and that's yeah. one of the really exciting things about what you do and and i'm sure that's one of the reasons why you were kind of drawn in down yeah yeah definitely i think there's always with every album there's always a kind of i think we all personally have like certain boxes we want to tick and this album i don't know how apparent it is when you listen to it but me and carlos were re like really into like cowboy guitar lines like we were really inspired by Roland Les Howard and like kind of Lee Hazelwood songs. So like every song was kind of like a fight to see who could write the cowboy line for this song. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I wrote it for, the, I wrote the line for this one, but it didn't make sense for me to play it. So he plays it first, but he, he changes how he plays, he doesn't replay really it the cowboy way, but and then I was like, oh, I want to play it. And he was like, oh, we'll just put it at the end of the song. So that's why I, I played it at the end and uh, that was kind of like a nice moment. I suppose that's why it is called. 
Carlos and Curly's love time. There was a lot of love going on. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you go about recording, you said, then? I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's this holistic approach to recording these two albums that it's like, we're going <coughs> to do this and the band are going to play together and we're not going to have one person on their own at any time just doing something. Everybody's going to be in the room and kind of feel Yeah, and also, you know, we tried to not divide the album up into... I mean, it's exaggerating slightly, but to an extent, you know, once we'd kind of built this castle in the corner of the room and, you know, we tried not to really change things too much. You know, there was obviously some songs we'd used different... Um, we didn't, no, actually, we didn't really change them I mean, the mics. Like basically, once it was set, it was set. I and mean, obviously, the, it comes from the playing. You know, if you play a different... I mean, obviously, you'd swap guitars and there's loads of different pedals and there's kind of... Mm. But all of the, the work in the initial recording part was done by how you play and what you play you know there's a certain amount of dynamics and eqing going down because when you record on tape you have to think in advance a bit about just how to sort of maximize the signal on the tape and so there's certain things that you have to do that just the tape pushes you into that world a bit but again once it's set it's kind of set so you know we'd have well it's a 16 track tape so it's not there's, we're not recording a huge number of things there's certain amount of pre-mixing going on i think the drums went down onto tape as probably six tracks maybe four even. i can't really remember but you know because mm. we'd have a couple of mics on there'd be two separate amps for each guitar yeah and wh- um, where were so, the mics but how did you place all the mics for the castle well it was uh, because everything was close together to get the separation that i wanted they're all ribbon mics um so there'd basically be a ribbon on each speaker and then a few mics around the room so the room mics pick up a kind of mix of everything and the ribbons are very, very directional and just pick up that so that when you're mixing it, you can, if you need to boost something. So I tried to start with kind of like getting, you know, playing back the sound that we could hear in the room, then just reinforcing elements, you know, so if something needs to be louder, then you go to the close mic and boost it a bit. I mean, that's oversimplifying it a bit, you know, that's how it exists when it's on the two inch, but then we would take the two inch and transfer that into into the computer and then there's all the kind of processing that to an extent then we yeah we did divide it into you know obviously each one requires different different treatment but obviously there's a lot that goes into it afterwards but what i think we all think of as the recording process was the days where the tape was running and everyone was standing in here playing Mm. you know the kind of bits afterwards you know it's just kind of technical stuff yeah. <laughs> like, i mean it sounds stupid so but, mm. I, but you know what i mean like i do like overdub time is a good time oh the oh yeah yeah mm. the, the overdub we tend to like do the overdubs really the sort of like mad enthusiastic days like yeah. oh my god this is such a good sound where should we use it <laughs> <laughs> yeah whenever you start doing like mad stuff for overdubs i think like that's whenever like this this studio in particular becomes so useful and so effective because it is kind of tight it's like it's so easy to set up like you know like there's a spring in the ceiling and like everything's kind of at hand just to like throw at songs and it's uh it makes it really good i is, is there much overdubs and you said I, I feel like is there like something over carlos's guitar there's probably like celeste over that maybe yeah true Ah, yeah, you go on piano. Mm-hmm. 
sounds cross. <laughs> <laughs> Effects generally than in dog rolls, don't they? Mm. I feel we use the space echo a lot, don't we? we kind yeah. of, <laughs> it's integral. It's just so nice to yeah. to pick something and and just run it through. Mm. I think the sidechain thing is like it. It's such an easy way to make things sound like they're produce because like like taking the signal of the like two guitars and the bass and like sidechaining it to the kick so it's always in time and like affecting it in whatever way is always gonna make like you're effectively like it ties everything together yeah you're producing while you're going kind of you know what I mean like you end up with something it's not just like the raw tracks you have this element of ambience yeah like just just there already it's well I think yeah the fact that you can hear it while you're playing you kind of get the finished Mm. thing coming at you I think that's that's yeah. the key, isn't it? Because you could easily do it afterwards. It's easy to do that kind of thing in post-production, but yeah. I don't think it would give you the same feeling. Exactly, yeah. Mm. It's almost as if what you are trying to do with these two records and the approaches that you've taken with recording Fontaine's is that you want to capture this, this great chemistry that the band have and let them live in the moment as they mm. perform and create it. Um, otherwise, it'll get too analytical and we'll move away from... From what you're doing and maybe that was the experience you had in la where it suddenly mm. kind of didn't feel mm. quite right because you had kind of stretched it into something else which maybe you will do further down the line but at this point at this juncture there's such momentum behind the band you know and, and mm. the fact that you ended up recording it in two weeks and mm. that's recording and mixing and i think we might have mixed it, it can't, we couldn't have recorded it and mixed it in two weeks i think we did then really i think so yeah yeah, sure. Oh. We had the listening party at the end of the two weeks. Oh uh, yeah. So. yeah, it's no messing about. Is it? <laughs> no wonder you get so much work done, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> you insist everybody comes in right, over and done. But you've, I think, well, I don't know whether you've done it as part of the conversation, but you've alluded to the fact you've already recorded a, a third Fontaine's DC mm. album. Mm. So, um, any hints about that in terms of the, you, you've approached that one differently? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's what I like about recording with you is that it does feel like it's a journey that we're all on and so mm. you know there was obviously a kind of shift between dog girl and hero's death but this new one yeah we've taken it there's loads of different things that yeah. have um another day another podcast yeah. it'll be chatting. <laughs> yeah, yeah i hope so <laughs> but it's moved on a lot yeah i'm not surprised um we normally round up by asking a couple of repeat questions that dan you've actually answered quite a few times now in terms of advice and kit but in terms of your experience, Connor and Tom, you know, do you have advice for other people? You know, who having gone through the process of starting a band, forming a band, and taking it two albums down the line, or now three, what would you say to somebody who would come up and say, you know, I need some advice? The most simple advice that I can give, but probably the most, you know, universal, is to just really work on your live sound. And I think that is the thing that like kind of pushed us forward. We were always a live band, you know, recording as much as it is fun and like we love making records, but 
I sometimes, or like definitely back then, just saw it as like a formality of being a live band was that we had to record, you know what I mean? And I feel like when you look at it that way and your performance being not one of like showmanship, but just out of like pure energy for the music, then um, that honesty and that approach usually works and just rehearse a lot. Yeah, yeah that discipline and determination with your mm. rehearsals seems to have paid off. Definitely, uh, yeah, and that's because it is like being in a band. It's not because <laughs> I think whenever I decided to do music when I was younger, I thought that oh, I'll just be a musician. It'll be like real slack, you know what I mean? <laughs> 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 but then, like, because there is passion involved, that like it does end up like being, you know, like rehearsing for like eight hours or whatever, and you're like are writing like for five days a week or whatever. But it's it's fun. Yeah, and Tom, advice for any aspiring musicians, drummers. I mean, the interesting thing is that with the band, because you do actually swap around instruments, you know, there's quite a bit of footage online of mm. of Tom playing guitar or you, you mentioned Digo is playing piano on, on a little section that we were just hearing and yeah. you're not scared to switch around and move about if necessary. Yeah, yeah. I can only play uh, fuzzy open chords and that's <laughs> it. I'm, my uh, guitar playing skills are very limited, but yeah. But, but it yeah. has a useful function. Yeah, definitely. Nonetheless. <laughs> definitely. I mean, now that you're an, an established star drummer, you know, do people come running up to you, Tom, and say, no, I want to learn. What should I do? I, have, I haven't quite got that yet, to be honest <laughs> with you. I don't know. I feel, I feel like if I was to give, um, give any advice to somebody who's starting a band, it would definitely be do it with people that you really get on with because you're going to be around... You're going to be around them 24-7 <laughs> for about two years. Yeah, um, That's very good advice. But I think also, I think doing it with people that you really get on with and you really have uh, have love for, um, I feel like that does definitely translate when you're writing and, you know, into the music as well. So I feel like that's actually such an integral part of it. Yeah. And in terms of your, your friendships, am I right in thinking that the band formed around a mutual love of poetry? Is that correct? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, no, it it did, and it it also we were all musicians. We were all studying music in a college, and we were kind of we had like just begun being like friends, like kind of going out for drinks and stuff, and that's kind of where the poetry started. But um, yeah, we just had conversations about what we would want a band to sound like, and uh, we just started it. Then I think we were all kind of writing our own songs, and we just Digo sent around a text being like, "Do you want to actually do this band?" And we did it. Yeah, we threw ourselves into it. And, uh, yeah, and the next thing you know, you're in a garden shed. Yeah. You're having the time of your life. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> Living it up. No, but it is, it is not, like, it really, like, that. what Tom said about, like, make sure that, like, you just get on is, like, so important. Because, like, honestly, I think it would be miserable to, like, do spend that much time with people that you don't, like, inspire you or, like, that you have, like, so much respect for. Like, I feel like we respect each other so much musically and give each other time and that's why like our arrangement is like very we really zone in is because we all you know give everyone's thought a chance mm. even if it's like going down a yellow brick road and you don't know really where you've gone with the song then we always give people a voice which mm. is um is really important mm. yeah so many bands crash because of the personalities involved mm. yeah that's the way it works. Could still happen. Mm, yeah. <laughs> There's still time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and in terms of kit, you know, often we ask if people have a favourite piece of kit or a piece of kit that they can't do without. And sometimes the answer is a, a, you know, a laptop um, mm. because it's such an essential tool these days. But uh, Curly, you mentioned that, you know, doing that gig at the Five Bells and you turned up and you had one pedal and you felt a bit 
not necessarily inadequate, but mm. a bit like out of place. And yeah. I mean, it, has that changed? I mean, at that point, you had that level of experience. I mean, do you now, Tom, do you always have a cowbell in your back pocket? Is that, <laughs> is that <laughs> he, he leaves the cowbell at home? You know? Yeah, I don't I don't bring the uh, cowbell <laughs> with me, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I feel I feel like uh, we've definitely um, expanded in terms of like gear wise and stuff. Me, probably less so than the lads. I feel like I just have a kind of a normal standard kit setup. But yeah. like, yeah, I think the one piece of gear that I just wouldn't go anywhere with is the Black Beauty because Dan Dan had one for the first record and I, and I played it and it was absolutely, I was like, this is what a real snare drum sounds like. It's class. Yeah. So I went straight out and got one for the second record. So that's my one piece thing. That's my one thing. Right, I go so anywhere. Black Beauty is a kind of snare drum. Yeah, yeah. 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 Ludwig. Um, a piece of kit that I require or call essential i don't know i really i really like my fender coronado that i bought just before we recorded a hero's death it's like 1966 it's nice because i kind of bought it because it's like hollow body or like semi-hollow oh no it's completely hollow it uh, has a nice enough acoustic that whenever we were touring loads it was nice to play in hotels so i could write in hotels instead of just playing like an electric where it's kind of so that's probably like the thing that I write on most and still to this day I would probably write most things on that. So I'd probably call that essential. Yeah. Yeah. And practical. You know, it's Yeah, and it's just really nice looking. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, having given tape notes listeners advice quite a few times and talked about kit, um, each time do you think, Oh, what I should have said was <laughs> this or what I should have mentioned? Well yeah, I guess it's different for all I mean I think probably in t- with the bit of gear that I, with recording with you, I mean, it's like, I know we've kind of covered this, but I think the Red Mustang. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I just, you know, that. Oh, the, swar- one, the Swarmatron as well, though. Yeah, yeah I probably said the Swarmatron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, the Red Mustang. Yeah, or the side chain, the um, oh, minor, yeah. minor concussion. Yeah, I mean, that's a really yeah. integral part of yeah. this sound. Is this? It's a pedal made by Ranger called the minor concussion and that's the thing that takes the kick drum signal and kind of knocks down the uh whatever else you put into it and a lot of things go through there i put the swarmatron through that when i'm you know when we're doing these recordings but um i think really if there was one thing that got nicked and the most annoying would be the red mustang <laughs> mm. just because carlos really likes it and mm. yeah great guitar mm. excellent it's been so good to do this um, having tried to do it online and, and failed miserably. I'm so pleased that we were <laughs> able to reconvene. So thank you very much indeed uh, for doing that and inviting us back into the studio, Dan. I uh, okay. really appreciate it. Um, we should exit with music, of course. What should we play as our exit music as we walk off into the sunset <laughs> with the cowboy guitars <laughs> chiming in the background? Lucid Dream? Lucid Dream, yeah. Maybe? Yeah, Lucid Dream. Okay, that's it. Thank you. This is Lucid Dream. It is Fontaine's DC. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a moment, do tell your friends and leave us a review. It all really helps. Thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show. I'm just one part of the team that brings you tape notes. It relies on your support. If you'd like to donate, please head to our website. 
To ask a question on a future episode or find out who's coming up, head to our socials and on Instagram you can see pictures from the recording sessions for each episode of Take Notes. Once again, thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye. And the clouds on the north body hours to look down a detail of books the affair. And it's all coming back, and the main thing is that the rain changed direction before you there. Always there when the rain changed direction, the better play tricks in a hair. I'm a look in the mare, and it's all coming back.